All right, if you would, uh, take your Bibles. Let's turn back to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. Last week we turned our attention to kind of the second uh, aspect of end times theology. We talked about the rapture a few weeks ago, and uh, now we are taking a look at the tribulation. And my, my purpose in beginning this way, we're going to get into some details of the tribulation in weeks to come, but I just thought it would be helpful to begin by kind of getting a, a, a broader view of this period of time and to identify really two significant elements of it, but they go together, and, and we'll see that again tonight, and that is the abomination, what's called the abomination of desolation, because, because it's, it's a... It's a issue that shows up in a lot of prophetic texts, <clears throat> five of them, including this one, and it's kind of a, mark, a marker of sorts for, in particular, the, the premillennial view, as I'm going to be arguing for, that, that identifies the abomination of desolation as, a, as an important moment in the tribulation period, and that coupled with the one who commits it. The Antichrist. So the, these are kind of two big issues, and, and I think it's helpful that we see how Jesus taught on this, getting a broader overview of this period of time, and then we'll, it's kind of like the bird's eye view, then we'll go down and look at the details um, as, uh, as the weeks go on, looking a little more specifically at it. So uh, we're in Mark chapter 13, and we're going to read once again verses 14 through 23. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes, but woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter. For in those days there will be tribulation, such as has not been seen since the beginning of the creation, which God created until this time, nor shall ever be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom He chose, He shortened the days." And if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, see, I have told you all things beforehand. So so in looking at this, and the outline that you have for tonight is the same as it was last week, Um, it's, it's the... Pretty straightforward. I mean, Jesus prophesies that right before his second coming, which is detailed beginning in verse 24, verses 24 through 27. So prior to his second coming, Jesus identifies a period of what he calls great tribulation. And I think we can identify several features of it. And this is what we started looking at last week. So kind of three broad descriptions of this period of time. They get, again, give us a general view of what's going on, 
and begins to answer an important question, and that is, why? Why the judgment of God? Why especially the intensity of it? When we turn our attention in weeks to come to like beginning in Revelation chapter 6, and we, we begin to walk our way through the details that are recorded, and it's pretty detailed. It's pretty weird, but it's pretty detailed, all right? In other words, this, the, the imagery that, that's used is striking and, you know, requires some amount of focus to try and work our way through it. But we, we're, we're going to get into, the, into those details, but why, why is it so intense? Well, some of what Jesus teaches, I think, gives us an idea of that. So, we started looking at the first description. Number one, the end of time, this period of tribulation, will be a time of idolatry and blasphemy. And so we spent all of our time trying to unpack this phrase in verse 14. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not. Now that one phrase I think identifies for us what is that point, idolatry and blasphemy. So we went all the way back to Daniel, worked then back into the New Testament. We looked at 2 Thessalonians. Then there's passages even in the book of Revelation where this particular moment, I think, is described with a little more detail. And just, just as a bit of review, and then I can see if there's any questions left over from that discussion last week, and then we'll push forward. And that is the abomination being a moment that happens at the midway point of the tribulation. Again, I'll get into the details of the days. We saw it in Daniel, right? There's, there's all these Days. There's specific numbers that are given, and I'll, we'll look at that when we get into the details. But for now, at the middle point, the Antichrist will establish himself, partly as a result of an action where he appears to die, comes back to life, and thus is presented as not just a God, but God. He is the one to be worshipped. He is the Savior. And so he establishes himself in the temple as the one to be worshipped, to whom sacrifice is to be given. So, again, that's why I identify this as a time of idolatry and a time of blasphemy. And and it, it it is so significant that he's going to demand worship under the penalty of death, and he's going to require people to take his mark as a way to identify their fidelity to him. So this is the abomination of desolation, and we even noted kind of the the language that needs to be teased out there, the abomination that brings on, the abomination that results in desolation, that makes things desolate. So the reason why this phrase is stated this way is because Jesus is identifying this moment as as a real trigger. Now, up until this point, there has been judgment, and and it's been pretty significant, but mild in compared to what's coming afterwards. 
Again, we'll flesh that out as we go through the details. But, but this, this moment is a moment that then invites what is called the great day of God's wrath. In fact, if you have titles in your Bibles, I know the New King James does this. This text is even titled as the, the great tribulation to distinguish it from the rest of the tribulation. In other words, that the period of time that follows this abomination of desolation and until his second coming is a time of extreme, intense judgment poured out on a rebellious world. And so you should note that the problem is not just that the the one identified as the Antichrist will establish himself in the temple as the one to be worshipped as God. We'll see this in Revelation. There, There are all too many people who are all too willing to follow along. I mean, yes, he is threatening death if you don't worship him, but do not conceive of the Antichrist as, as, as like, you know, this, this harsh dictator that everybody hates. That's not what this is going to be like. He is going to be loved, revered, and adored. So, like, like when people want to look back and say, you know, at the time, at the time period, say, say Hitler, was Hitler an Antichrist? Well, in a sense, in a sense, but he was not necessarily beloved and adored and loved by all. Hence all the attempts to try and assassinate him. All right, so even by his own people. So, so we, we, but yet there were those who absolutely revered, loved, and adored him. So just think about that, yet expanded to its greatest degree. So the globe, the, a large population of the planet will gladly and willingly engage in this worship. And so it isn't just that you have this one man doing this one thing. You have people much like Israel who very quickly agreed to the plan, let's get all our gold together, melt it down, make some big dumb cow and say, this is the one that saved us from Egypt. They did that really quickly and gladly and willingly. No one forced them into it. This was something they did on purpose, it reflected what was still a corrupt heart. So this is what's going to be on display during this period of time, except to its greatest degree, perhaps even like we've never seen before. So it will be a time of idolatry and blasphemy. So any questions about that? Left over from last week, we went a little bit long last week, and so I didn't really get a chance to ask questions. Bill? That's, that's right. This cannot happen until the temple gets rebuilt. I do believe there will be a third temple built. That's right. <clears throat> all right, so you understand. You, oh, great. Okay, so we understand it all perfectly, and uh, no more questions about the mystery of the abomination of desolation. Now, uh, you know, it, it really, again, it still is kind of a tricky thing, and there um, inevitably are questions related to it. Dennis? So if, if Christ cannot come back until the abomination, and that can't happen until the uh, temple is rebuilt, does that mean Christ is not imminent? He returns not imminent? Yeah, so, so I mean, that's, that is a good question. I, I I would suggest this is one of the reasons why I still like a pre-tribulation rapture, uh, because it, it would still maintain a sense of imminency, this be ready, because you know not when the hour, when the hour will come. Uh, 
Though I think at the same time, it still does uh, provide, even during that period of time, a sense of, of uh, imminency, M- mainly because I don't, I don't know that there's going to be this slew of people who are going to be neck deep, in spite of Left Behind and Tim LaHaye's book. I, 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 think, I do think there are going to be people who are going to be saved, but I don't think they're going to be sitting around saying, oh, oh well, here's where he, okay, so 120, you know, 1,260 days, so Jesus should come back here. Uh, so I, I still think there, there could be some of that left over. But I, but I would suggest that that, that idea of, of eminency, of these things happening, uh, also applies to the totality of these end times events, so that this period of time could be inaugurated quickly. Uh, and and at a time which we cannot pick and for which we need to be ready. But, that, but that, that is, though, a good question, and that is, in fact, an issue that gets brought up uh, by, um, in particular, like, amillennial, amillennialism will, will pick up on that and will uh, suggest, well, here's part of the problem with this whole, whether, whether you're pre or post uh, there's still this sense where you, you, you end up with kind of Jesus coming back at a time when maybe people would know. So, so that is an argument, though. That is where you'll, you'll, hear, you'll hear them talk. Sam, did you have a... Uh, another wrinkle on that, though, is the temple's going to be rebuilt. It has to be rebuilt on the Temple Mount. Yes. There's problem there. Yeah. So the rock has to go away. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So it does. It, it does require that there will be a change in uh, in geopolitical realities in the Middle East. Yes, absolutely, uh, because it does have to be built on site, um, and uh, and according to the law. And so, there, yeah, there, there's going to need to be uh, some allowances for that to take place. And so, it is often suggested that. This is part of the covenant, and Daniel speaks of this. Daniel speaks of this covenant that is made, the prince making a covenant and then breaking it. And so is this what that means? I mean, it could be that, this, that what he engages in is, uh, is a covenant relationship where he makes a promise to God's people and temple is rebuilt uh, and then breaks that by establishing himself as the one to be worshipped. So, Fred? Uh, I, yeah, here in just a minute. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll address the elect here in just just a minute. We sure will. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so the question is, is, is this primarily directed at the Jews? And, would you, and by that you mean Jews that are alive during the end times? Is, is that the question? Yeah. So is this, is this directed then at the, the Jews? And so the fleeing is the breaking, you know, the, the breaking of the covenant, thus bringing persecution upon the Jews. There are certainly some who'd interpret it that way, and that, could, that per, perhaps could be the case. 
I, I am inclined, though, to see it as, um, and this will get to the issue of the elect, in, in general, a word to those who become believers during the tribulation. Though I do think there will be persecution against the Jews. <laughs> I, do, I do think that will happen as well. So. That's right. That, that's right, that's right, because he will turn on them, and they will ideally, you know, see him for who he is. And, and so, yes, yes, that would be part of the persecution. All right. Okay, so go on to number two then. The second um, feature here, th- this, this is not deep or profound, it'll be a time of trouble and tribulation. And, and in fact, uh, Jesus' words are really striking here. So, uh, so f- follow along then, beginning at the end of verse 14. It says, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. So, He is describing something that then requires an immediate reaction. Like, and so could this also, and maybe even getting to this question that you already asked, part of the fleeing, I would suggest, also involves escaping the wrath to come. Not just the issues with the Antichrist, but the the wrath of God. Get, in other words, get out of the way of the bullets that are about to start, you know, being fired, so to speak. So, so now is the time to flee. When this happens, by the way, just, just as a kind of a blanket to cover me theologically, I, I've described the abomination of desolation as best I know how. Is there a chance, small chance I'm wrong? I mean, really small, okay? Yeah, yeah, maybe. All right. Yes, no, for sure there would be. Uh, I will at least say this. When the, this is written in such a way that when the abomination of desolation happens, they will know it when they see it. Okay? So regardless of how this falls out, it will be obvious. I mean, there will be no mistaking this moment. It's not like you're going to have this wave of people who, who flee and go, oh, wait, that wasn't it. All right, we can go back, all right? And then a few years later, they flee again. Oh, wait, no, that wasn't it. We'll go back. Uh, I, I think it's going to be unmistakable. And so that, that's even the, I think, the intent of saying it the way he says it. Let the reader understand these things. All right, so when it says, let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house, and you're probably aware of this, you know, housetops often functioned as patios. They, they had a separate set of steps that could get up to them. So it's not like Jesus is saying, you better just run and jump off the house, all right? Don't even bother going down into it. What he means is, don't bother going down and getting stuff. There were probably stairs on the outside of the house that let them off the roof. It would have been cool, all right? It's a place in the evening they could go and they could sit. Uh, and so it was not uncommon then for them to have these housetops where, where they could spend time. So he's saying, all right, if you're on the housetop, leave right away. Leave with the clothes on your back. That's it. Don't get anything else. If you're in the field, 
don't go back and get your clothes. Again, being hot, sweaty, hard work, and they wore multiple layers, there probably would have been cloaking uh, of some kind so that they were, you know, they, they weren't working in the fields with, without any clothes on, all right? Uh, but it, it would have been, you know, enough to still be able to be in public, so to speak. So don't go back and get your outer cloaks or anything else that you may have put on the side of the field so that you can go in there and do the work. Just let that go. And and then he speaks in verse 17 to another potential problem, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. In other words, when those days come, the need to flee will be so imminent and needs to be done so quickly that if you have a hindrance in some way, not meaning that a not, not meaning any disrespect to babies, all right, or nursing mothers, but uh, obviously uh, one who is pregnant or one who is nursing probably is not moving as fast as the guy who left his clothes in the field, all right? So it's going it, to be that kind of a, of a need to flee quickly. And then he even says, and pray that your flight may not be in winter. I know that sounds strange to us, because what's our thought of the Middle East? Hot dry. You know, it's interesting if you, you know, if you kind of look on, if you look on a map, go straight around the world, we're not that far off from one another. So they, they can have very cold nights. Uh, Jerusalem can even get snow. I mean, it's rare, but it can happen. Uh, and, and in fact, that, by the way, is one of the reasons why we generally believe Jesus was not born in December. Because it would have probably been too cold for the shepherds to be out in the fields at night with their flocks. Springtime would have been more likely, and that they would have been with the, um, that, that's an option. Some even suggest in the September period of time, by the way, if you're wondering about that little tidbit, uh, that September may have even been a better, may even be a better option for when, uh, when Jesus was born. So, so they, they can have winters. I mean, they, they can have, it's, it's, not like, um, it's not like some places, you know, along the equator and some other places that are literally have two seasons. I mean, when we went to Mexico, the Yucatan, where Doug Miller, Doug and Darla live, they have two seasons. They have hot and hotter. Those are the two seasons. If you just want to work when it's like 85 and 90, then you go in February. If you go in August, it's going to be like 90 to 100. All right, so, I mean, it's just, it's, they've got two seasons, and that, that's it, hot and hotter. Um, but, uh, but so he's warning them here, pray that you're, you know, that wouldn't happen in winter. And this is then how he describes it. So he's leading up to what is something very clearly uh, distressing. This is, these are ominous words, the way he leads into this. And so he says, for in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And if whatever, if whatever you're thinking about that phrase and thinking, oh, does that mean it's going to be? No, it's going to be worse than that. However you to finish that sentence, it's going to be worse than that. In other words, what, here's what this means. 
you and I don't have categories to fully understand the extent of this statement. Because he's saying nothing like this has ever happened before. So the only thing we can do is imagine. And we'll do our best as we go through the details that the, that the book of Revelation gives. But it, it identifies then the level of judgment to come is going to be so severe that it's unlike anything that has ever been seen. And then he adds this, verse 20. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake whom he chose, he shortened the days. So I, I think the, the reference there then to the elect is, is all, I mean, the elect is always a reference to God's people. I think it is a reference to Christians, uh, those who, who become believers during the tribulation period. Some may want to identify it just as Jews, those who would take that approach to this end time stuff, uh, to the end time information. Uh, at, at the very least, though, it does speak to those who are God's people. And I would suggest that Jesus is speaking with a bit of hyperbole here, would be the way to put it. In other words, he's not suggesting that that God's judgment is actually going to pour, be poured out to such a degree on the world that, that everyone will be wiped out. But he's just saying this is how intense it is. It is so intense that, that if, in fact, the elect could be taken by it, they, they would be. If they could, but they won't. They won't. But if they could, th- this, would, this would do it. And so God, in, God then in His grace shortens those days and makes them less than what they could have been. You'll note it doesn't say he lessens his judgment, right? It just says he shortens the days. So he limits the amount of time in, in which judgment is, is poured out and in which rebellion is allowed then uh, not, not only to, to really... I think two things are happening. The judgment of God being poured out, reaching its greatest degree, and the rebellion of man reaching its greatest degree. So let me give you also another thing. None of you are going to believe this. You ready? You love it when I say stuff like that, right? You're not going to believe me when I say this. When it comes to the ability of man to sin, you ain't seen nothing yet. I know you think you have. I know you think, and right now in your minds, I can see it. God gives me special... I know He doesn't, all right? I can see in your mind, you say, no, this is a preacher. He does this. He does this every now and then. All right. Nope, nope. This is as bad. This is as sinful as people have as ever been. It's as bad as it's ever been, and it can't get any worse. <laughs> One, there have been periods of time where man's sin has been expressed in far more depraved ways than what we've seen in our own country. I'd be glad to give you a history of that sometime if you'd like to hear. There are periods of time. There are periods of time in the history of this world where groups of people were far more sinful than even what they're doing in Hollywood. I'm just going to have to ask you to trust me if you don't believe that. Again, I'd be glad to give some lessons here. Now, the problem we deal with in our country is we recognize we are at a place we've never been in in our nation's history, right? So it's hard for us to imagine this. But I am here to tell you the rebellion and depravity capabilities of man will reach a climactic point like you and I have never seen during this time. There has been nothing like it 
since the beginning of creation. There will be nothing like it. So this is part of what's going to invite God's judgment. And we'll see some of this, by the way. We'll see how Revelation testifies to this, to the degree to which man is going to engage uh, in his sinfulness. And so this is why God is pouring out his judgment to this degree. And so he is saying, well, if it, if it, weren't, you know, if it weren't for the sake of God's grace uh, to shorten those days, even the elect would, would be taken out. And so I think that is a reference then to those who would be saved. However, I, I do want to do my, I do want to give due justice here. Uh, those who would argue for a post-tribulation view of the rapture, a verse like this is an important verse for that argument. Because this does suggest God will allow His people to face a culture that is under His judgment. (laughs) I mean, so it, it does suggest that God doesn't... In other words, when people get saved during the tribulation, it doesn't mean that they're raptured right in that moment... Uh, and this, this then is, is an argument that post-tribulation folks will point to and say, see, God, God will allow His church to go through tribulation. He will. And then right before the second coming, there will be the rapture. And they'll use a verse like this uh, as, as an argument for it. And again, just to be fair, it's not a bad one. It's not an unbiblical one. They, they are using the text in a way that it could be used. I would disagree with it, uh, but nonetheless. So I do, I do want to kind of give that, give that shout out. All right, so, um, so again, what we, f- what we find being described here is a time of trouble and a time of tribulation. And then one more, number three. The end of time will be a time of deception and rebellion. A time of deception and rebellion. The elect is going to come up again here. Verse 21, then if anyone says to you, look here, look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, see, I have told you all things beforehand. Now, there could be two options here for these words. Jesus could be talking to them, meaning the men of the day, his disciples, and saying, all right, in light of this, be prepared for the days to come when people will suggest that they are the Christ or that they have found the Christ and don't believe it. Now, in a sense, that's absolutely the case. And ever since the time of Christ, there have been people claiming to be Jesus. Uh, I, I did, a, did a quick search. I didn't spend a bunch of time trying to figure all this out. Uh, but in the world today, there are about a dozen people claiming to be Jesus. I, I don't think any of them are. Uh, so, but there are, there are about a dozen. There could be more, but about a dozen people right now who say that they are. And when I say Jesus, I don't mean like, uh, like just some kind of, we, they, they say that they're him. He's come. They're him. They're, they're the guy. Uh, and they're going to bring about then the, uh, the kingdom, kingdom of God. Uh, so, it, it, does this have application perhaps? But I would suggest the word then in verse 21 is a, is a time marker. I think he's saying then in relation to this period of time, there will be those 
who will claim to be the Christ or look, he is there. Now, I know at this point the Antichrist has come, but there, and so his identifying these of false Christ and false prophets would not only involve the Antichrist and the false prophet, but those who would then point to him. But at the same time, you know, it, Jesus is just warning them. There, there, there are going to be those who are going to claim to have, to, to, to have uh, the, the power and authority and righteousness of one who could be identified as Christ. They're going to they're be those who are cl- going to claim to be prophets pointing you to, the, to this Christ. So I'm writing these things to tell you th- that these, this is not true. And what I think is particularly important is the statement that they will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Again, he's speaking with some amount of hyperbole. It's not going to happen, but that's how good they're going to be. They're going to be able to mimic things that appear to be miracles, signs and wonders. The same things that the apostles did in the book of Acts. They're going to be able to seemingly produce the same kinds of actions. Now, to my Bible students in here, do we have an example of this in the Bible already? All right, the book of Exodus. All right, very good, yeah. So what, what do the magicians in Egypt do? They throw, throw down their stake, right? And it turns to snakes, right? Till, till Moses throws his down and it eats theirs, all right? Uh, which would have been a pretty awesome moment to be in. Um, I don't know if you're an Egyptian magician and think, hmm. One, I'm going to have to get a new staff, uh, and uh, this seems to be a pretty big sign. So, so that, that kind of, yeah, so they were able to mimic some of those things. But, but I would suggest this is more specific than that. Be- because really what they were doing, were, they were mimicking the things Moses was saying was a sign of either his authority or God's judgment. I think they will mimic signs and wonders. I think they will try and mimic, and people will believe they're healing people. People are being raised from the dead. I think it's going to be those kinds of New Testament, gospel, book of Acts things that will be done as a way to try and verify uh, that, that, that the Christ has come. But, but he's saying, but don't be deceived. And again, that phrase, perhaps even the elect to be deceived, that shows you the degree to which this, the, this will be manifest, that the types of signs and wonders that they will be doing uh, will be really well done. And so he's saying uh, this period of time will be a time of great deception, a time of those engaging in it and those all too willing to believe in it. And so then he concludes this little bit, verse 23, by saying, but take heed, see, I have told you all things beforehand. So I think that's a good reminder to us what Jesus is doing, he is, he is talking about things that have yet to happen. And when he's talking to his disciples, I mean, the disciples have asked, tell us the signs of these things. When will the end occur? So these things have not happened as Jesus is teaching. So clearly, they are future events, and I would argue even today, they are still future events. Remember from one of our earlier teachings, there are some who suggest Jesus is going to be is teaching about Rome coming to Jerusalem in 70 AD and burning it down. Which, by the way, would fit a lot of the context. Except one. Verse 24. 
But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. So that didn't happen in AD 70. And in fact, the book of Revelation is written after, afterwards, and though some will argue it's written as code like we talked about to what happened and already has happened. I just don't see it. I think Jesus is writing about stuff, he's talking about stuff, and the the gospel is giving us information that is yet to come so that we as God's people would be mindful of these things, be alert, and be found faithful. So we don't want to just treat this as if it's really interesting information about something that will happen to another group of people. It is instead something that is, in, that is designed to encourage us, like it was designed to encourage His disciples. Live in faithfulness and obedience today. These things will happen exactly as Jesus said they would happen. I don't claim to know exactly what all the ins and the outs of that mean. But I do know everything that is said in verses 14 through 27 will happen exactly the way Jesus says it will happen. So I need to be faithful and obedient. And can I also suggest hopeful? I know we get burdened by the circumstances we see in the world. I get it. I do too. That's why I encourage you not to watch the news. Because you never come away thinking, boy, that was a good use of my time. I feel better than I did an hour ago. Glad I watched that. I I don't mean you need to be ignorant of world affairs. I just mean just as a steady diet of it, all right? Because we can get into this mindset of of what what is clearly what feels like the dumpster fire of this world, right? But rest assured... It will be remade. It will be restored. In fact, for those of you who remember better days in this country, those are awful in compared to what they will be. The days coming, you think of your best memories from your childhood. Those are horrible compared. Horrible compared to the great days that are coming. Do not sell God's work short. I promise you that what is being promised here is of infinitely greater value than anything you and I can imagine. This will be remade. It will be reformed. It will be restored. That which was lost in the garden will be brought back to its fullness and its glory. And that's better than anything we could imagine. The degree to which we, the, he says this tribulation will be worse than anything you can imagine, it's going to be better than in glory. The glory to come is going to be better than anything we can imagine. So let's rest in that church. Let, let the people of this world see a hopeful people. Not a compromising people. We still want to be faithful to the truth. And fight for the sake of the gospel. But let us be hopeful and to remind people, oh, there is, there is going to be, there's going to be change. Change is coming. Yes, yes. 
There will be things that will be built back better. Yes, yes, they will be. You can rest assured. Maybe not everybody will be around for it. Uh, You know, maybe some of those may be looking from a different perspective. Nonetheless, that will happen. All right, questions about what we looked at tonight? And I'm not going to have any sermons left for my kids this week. All right, I don't know what I'll do. All right, let's pray together. Father God, we do thank you again for the gathering of your people. Privileged to be with your people on this Lord's Day. We are grateful for the week that now lays out before us when we enter into that by faith. Thanking you for these great promises. Though though many of them come with heaviness and an understanding of what is going to be a great tribulation to come. What is going to be great sin. What is going to be great judgment. Yet we know it it is all in line with your perfect plan for then an even greater glory to come. And may that fill our hearts with hope. May that also be the message that we can declare, that there is is good news. This world does not have to have the final say on the lives of its inhabitants. And so, Father, may, may we be bold and courageous and compassionate as we proclaim the hope of the gospel, the truth of your word. Continue to lead and guide us so that in all that we do, we would be faithful to you, glorifying your great name. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.